uh, several weeks, and um, today we are on uh, in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and if you uh, don't have your own copy of Scripture, there are red uh, um, Bibles in the, in the pews. Please take one of those home if you'd like as our gift to you, but we are in uh, Mark, the first, uh, I'm sorry, in, in the eighth chapter of Mark, and uh, let me read the Word of God to us. Starting at verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid hands, his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, do people say, who does people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord, let us not be ashamed of you and your word. This is a difficult book, the Bible is, and, and, uh, and the gospel of Mark is a difficult gospel. If we truly read it and believe it, uh, we are saying some difficult things, and you are saying difficult things uh, through the scripture to us. Um, let, us uh, let us each uh, hear these words, hear your words, and respond to them uh, in the manner that you've set out for us. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So my tongue seems like it's a little tied today, so uh, bear with me. But through the past few weeks, uh, Josh has been uh, uh, preaching on Mark. We've been traveling through it and asking, who is Jesus? Starting in the first chapter, we've seen how Jesus' identity 
and his ministry were proclaimed. And, and then we see how he travels throughout Palestine on that mission. And he's calling and he's teaching, he's ministering, he's healing, he's rebuking, he's showing, uh, and he's equipping in this ministry. The Gospel of Mark is one of, of movement and urgency. Uh, on a, sort of a micro view, we can see how uh, he's walking or, he, or he's going or people are running toward him or he's in a boat. And there's a lot of travel in that. But then as we, as we get sort of into a bird's eye view of, of a macro view of Mark's Gospel, we see how he moves throughout the whole land. And there are two great movements really in in the gospel of mark the first one is everything leading up to this point from from one to the the middle of mark 8 and it's jesus being proclaimed and then going out into the world to proclaim his ministry to heal to act to, to do all those things and then there's this turning point and the and for the rest of the gospel it's going to be jesus uh luke says setting his eyes towards uh, or setting his face towards Jerusalem and moving toward Jerusalem and crucifixion and death and ascension. Today's reading is where this pivots, and it's a, a pretty amazing honor for the associate pastor to get to preach sort of the climax of, of or the, the turning point of the gospel of, of, uh, of Mark. And this turning point ends up, or it does this with a question. It's the question that Jesus poses to his disciples, and then it has two follow-on questions that are inferred. Because the question is, who is Jesus? And if you answer that, then you have to ask, well, what does that mean? And then how does that apply to my life? And your answer to these questions is critical. Because depending on those answers, either, and, and what you do with these answers. Either the rest of the gospel means everything, or the rest of the gospel of Mark means nothing to you. It has no power. Our story starts with Jesus arriving in Bethsaida, and people are bringing to him a, a blind man and asking him to touch him. And, and Jesus does touch him, but if you read in here, it's, it's sort of a different way than other healings. He's been healing people throughout the gospel at this point, but the first thing he does is he touches him, he takes his hand, and he leads him out of the town. People are coming to him, bringing this, this blind man to him because they know about him or they've heard about him, right? They... We, we, we see that, that uh, the people have seen or heard of his, his things, and they're, and they're questioning, well, who is he? Oh, we don't know, but, but he heals people. Or, you know, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's John the Baptist uh, reincarnated. Maybe, maybe he's a magician, you know, but somehow he's got this power. And so they bring him there. Jesus touches him, but he doesn't heal him right then like, like they were sort of expecting, perhaps. But instead, he leads him out of, uh, of the town. Because people don't understand Jesus' identity, they don't understand Jesus' power. In the words of Isaiah, they, they see, but they do not understand. Over the last weeks, we've heard many accounts of how people have reacted when Jesus displayed his power. He cast out demons. He made the lame to walk. He straightened the shriveled hand. He calmed the winds and the waves. He healed the sick and he raised the dead. And after this, people have, have reacted with fear. Uh, some of them have reacted with awe 
And some have even reacted with blasphemy. One of the most common reactions we see throughout the book of Mark is the word amazement. Actually, three different words for the word amazement or astonishment or, or wonder. Uh, that, that amazement happened in Bethsaida, too. The, it, it was the hometown of some of the, uh, the disciples. Uh, we know at least Philip, Andrew, and Peter, possibly uh, others. Jesus had spent a lot of time here teaching and healing and performing miracles uh, in and around the town. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the feeding of the 5,000, which is just a couple chapters early, uh, probably happened right there. Uh, and, and people, it says, were amazed. But that amazement had not transformed into faith. We know this because of something that Mark doesn't choose to highlight in his account of the feeding of the 5,000. But in Luke, uh, we find in, in chapter 9, he talks of that feeding of, of, of the 5,000, just a, a few pages uh, ahead of, of where we are. And, uh, and he starts and he, he talks about uh, the, uh, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and it says that people are amazed. And then, if you go for just one more chapter to Luke chapter 10, verse 13. This is what he says. So he's just done this. He's just this miraculous sign right outside the gates of Bethsaida. And he says, Woe, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Those are tough words. Jesus' teachings and healings and, uh, and miracles amaze people. But if you want to know why he said those things about those towns, turn with me back to Mark, actually to Mark chapter 6, verse 6, and we'll see what amazes Jesus. Mark's, Mark chapter 6. Uh, verse 6 says, and he marveled, or same word translated elsewhere, was amazed. He marveled because of their unbelief. That's what amazes Jesus, is all these things are going on, and people are seeing them, they're amazed, but they're not believing. I believe this is why Jesus takes the blind man out of the town. He's, he's not interested in creating a a mega church. He doesn't need the buzz of the crowd. He doesn't need a whole bunch of people who think that what he's doing is cool, that they're amazed by it. He doesn't want this, this environment where people are just excited by a cheap and a watered-down gospel, springing up quickly and then being either burnt by the sun or choked back by thorns. He's interested in planting his word deep in soil that'll be watered and it'll grow up and, 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 and it'll produce much fruit and it'll be strong enough to, to endure the tribulations of this world, you know, and disease and, and pests and wind. So Jesus not only takes this man out of the village to heal him, then once he heals him, he sends him back home and tells him not even to go back there. And this starts the next scene. And I apologize that we're not going into all of these really deep, but we're going through Mark. Mark's a fast gospel, and we're going through Mark even faster uh, as we try to just 
answer those questions. Who is Jesus? It says, uh, Jesus and his disciples continue on, again, going back to our, our Mark chapter 8, where we are today. They continue on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, over 20 miles north of where they start. I can imagine that there's many discussions that go on. Again, Mark is, is a fast gospel. He doesn't record everything that's said all the way on those, because that's at least a day's journey, maybe, maybe a couple as they go up there. The one he chooses to, uh, to illuminate or to highlight is the turning point of his gospel. And this discussion starts with, with one of the most important questions that can ever be asked of anyone in this life, and we have to answer it. It is, who is Jesus? He starts off by saying uh, to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Uh, this answer that they come up with, by the way, it, it's repeated just a couple chapters earlier when Herod gets asked, you know, or, or Herod hears about Jesus, and, and, he, and he wants to know who, who he is. And, they, and some say it says John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others one of the other prophets. And that's exactly what the uh, disciples say to, to him. This shows us that the prophecies from those very same prophets that some people think uh, Jesus might be are still holding true. Again, Isaiah says people will be hearing and not understanding, seeing but not perceiving. For those people, they're people who have witnessed uh, these mighty works, they've heard these teachings, they've seen Jesus in the flesh, right? Yet they still haven't grasped who Jesus is. They don't get it that he's the son of God. Right? He's Emmanuel. He is, he is God with us. And they haven't responded with repentance or, or grabbing on, holding on to those things. Though, taking hold of the salvation that he's bringing. And for them... These first eight chapters of Mark are all that they ever receive. They see who he is. They hear who he is. They, they see what he does. But the rest of this gospel just doesn't matter because they hear and do not understand, and they see but do not perceive. For them, Mark might just as well stop writing at this point. Because the rest of it, Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, the garden, the trial, the punishments, the torture, the death, and the resurrection have no effect on a person who doesn't understand who Jesus is. They say he might be John the Baptist. John the Baptist can't save them. They think he might be Elijah. He can't redeem them. None of the other prophets can forgive their sins. Listen again to, to Jesus Christ from Luke 10. He's, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Jeremiah says, uh, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. He says, do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary of the sea, a perpetual barrier that it, can, barrier that it cannot 
pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. It is as if, as if God is saying through the, the prophet Jeremiah, don't you see who I am? Don't you see what I'm doing? Why are you acting like you don't? Don't you get it? How can you not repent? How can you not turn away from all of your passions, your desires, and turn toward me? I am God. Do you know what that means? Same way Jesus displays the power that only can come from God. People even say that, but they still miss it. They look for the magical, and they miss the majesty. They, they talk about healing, but they, they miss the healer. And they, and they seek the riches, but they don't seek the king. It says Jesus is amazed by their lack of faith. He asks the disciples again, but who do you say I am? And Peter's response is the only one that can unlock the second half of Mark's gospel. It's an answer that we, we, we know from, from Matthew's account of the same conversation is not one that comes out of Peter's own wisdom or, or earthly intelligence. It, it is given by the Spirit of God. It says, by God himself. Peter says, you are the Christ. I want to stop here and, and, and just uh, um, point out something strange. Uh, and, and we need to start by, by explaining uh, or talking a little bit about this word Christ. Because um, you know, we're used to, you, know, you talk to me, I said, my Pat Testerman. Testerman is my last name. Right? Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Right? Joseph and Mary, they weren't Mr. and Mrs. Christ. That, that, that's not what that means. Christ comes from the, or is the, our translation of the Greek Christos. Uh, it means anointed. It's in the Greek translations of the Old Testament that were around in Jesus' time. It was used regarding the priests and the prophets and even the kings. When we hear the anointed of God, it's, a, it, it's, it, it's that same uh, the, the Hebrew would be uh, uh, Messiah, and the uh, and, and the Greek would be the Greek translation would be Christos. So you would say uh, it, it's an adjective. It's this person's anointed. This person's appointed, set apart by God. But here in Mark, as in other parts of the Gospel, Christos is used differently than you would find in those Greek translations of the Old Testament, because here. It, it includes the definite article, right? what we would call in, in English, the, right? The Christ. So it's not, it's not an adjective for Jesus. It's an identity. It's a, it, it's a noun. Jesus is not an anointed representative of, of, of God. Jesus is the anointed, the Christ. And that's not what all that stands out about Mark's use of Christ what stands out even more is where he puts it in his gospel. As we turn, I'd like you to turn, and as we go back to Mark chapter 1, the very first part of this gospel, the very first verse, I'd like you to think about two natural wonders that, that most of us have at least heard of or maybe at least seen pictures of, too. Um, one is Mount Everest. Right? Mount Everest is 29,000 to 29 feet 
above sea level. It is the biggest mountain on earth. And what stands out, what makes Mount Everest awesome is the presence of all this earth, right? There's just so much earth piled up and, and pushed up and everything else. It is almost 30,000 feet high. For those of you in my physical science class, the tropopause is almost, uh, is about where the top of Mount Everest is. And then the second natural wonder is the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon, when you stand on that, it's like almost 300 miles long and it's, it, it's 6,000 feet deep. And when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look over there, what's amazing about the Grand Canyon is all the earth that's not there. Right? It's, it's, it's a, and you're like, whoa. And if you've ever stood there, it's, it's just awe-inspiring. And so what stands out again is the absence of the earth. Think about that as we read this first verse of, of Mark, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, what Josh has been preaching about these past seven weeks, the, the, the gospel, the, the, the life, the, uh, the nature, the name, the character, the story, the purpose, the significance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just by writing it that way, Mark is sort of setting a flag. He's saying, this is what I am writing this all about. I am writing to tell you about the Christ, you know, the Son of God. And so you might expect that if he's going to declare that Jesus is the Messiah, you know, the Son of God, that every chance he gets, he's going to use those terms. Right? You'd be repeating that claim. But here we are all the way back in Mark chapter 8, and the word Christ has not been used at all. Since that, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the next time you see it is in Mark chapter 8. And the only time the term the Son of God is used is when the demons say it. That's crazy. Right? All these things are happening. And, and, and so this should stand out like we're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And we should say, wow, this is all missing. This is really important. This is significant. It's significant because despite Scripture, John the Baptist, God the Father, God the Spirit, Jesus himself, the demons, and even Satan have, have been testifying to Jesus' identity, it's not until God reveals this, opens up blind eyes and, and, and opens up deaf ears and, and, and clarifies dull minds that Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God, makes any difference in the story. And when that does happen, scales fall off eyes. You know, we see everything clearly. Even briefly, maybe, maybe imperf imperfectly, but we come to the, Peter comes to the realization that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and everything changes. And now that Peter and we assume other, the other disciples understand what the answer is to that most important question, you know, who do you say I am? The next one is, what does that mean? And those implications come immediately, because this is the gospel of Mark, the gospel of immediacy, right? And he uh, uh, immediately begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
This opens up the second half of the Gospel of Mark. From now on, Jesus is no longer coming out into the world. He is heading towards Jerusalem. And though that means absolutely nothing if Jesus is John the Baptist, or if he's Elijah, or even if he's one of the, the prophets, it means everything if he is the Christ. As Jesus turns towards Luke, he's, uh, Luke again says, he set his face toward Jerusalem and what it represents. His teachings also point in that direction. He says these things plainly. He doesn't say them in parables anymore, not in riddles. And these are hard teachings. He's just been revealed as the promised Messiah, and now he's saying that he's going to be killed. And so Peter, even though he has the knowledge of who Christ is, we see that he doesn't yet have faith in who he is in his character. Knowing who Christ is still is not the same as believing in him. James 2.19 says, right, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Knowledge without faith doesn't bring courage. It brings fear. If we go to Romans chapter 1, just a few uh, pages forward. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. They say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Knowledge without faith doesn't bring salvation. Knowledge without faith brings condemnation. We are without excuse. Hear this. You may be here today, and you may acknowledge, you may know that there is only one true God. You may know that Jesus is the Son of God. You have, may have even said that with your own lips. You may know that he is the promised Messiah. You may know that he has power. You may know that he rose from the dead after being crucified. You may know that you are a sinner and that you are in rebellion. You may know that you don't have the power to forgive your own sins or to make uh, amends for them. You may know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you may know that he offers the only possible forgiveness for your sins. And you may still be going on your way to hell. The demons know all these things, yet they don't have faith in Christ, and they remain in that rebellion against God. The last half of Mark's gospel is useless to them. Neither the cross nor the empty tomb hold any power for those who will not lay hold of them. You can know all these things. You may be resting in what you believe is the security of your salvation, but if that knowledge has not made it from your head to your heart through saving faith, that knowledge should have you shuddering instead of sleeping. Peter knows Jesus' identity. He has yet to have faith in that identity. His mind... Jesus says, remain set on the things of man instead of the things of God. We know this because Jesus says it. And when the Pharisees said of Jesus that he was of Satan, that was blasphemy. But when Jesus says that you are of Satan, that's a whole other ballgame, right? Without faith, it says in, in Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to, to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must first believe that, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
In the end, with all this knowledge that has been made plain to all of us, if we are still being conformed to this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds, then we are not setting our minds on the things of God, but on the things of men. And so instead of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, we may instead hear, you wicked and slothful servant. Or, as Peter's rebuke, get behind me, Satan. Knowledge without faith is useless. It leads only to death. So we've got to ask what what faith is. Where can we find it? How can we get it? Uh, Again, going back to Hebrews, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith involves hope, an aspiration, a belief that God is who he says he is. And then we need to ask then, so how does that apply to my life? And this is where... Jesus gets into uh, explaining that while salvation is the free gift of God, there's nothing we can do to gain that salvation, that following Jesus does cost everything. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. And so he calls that again, not just to his disciples, to the, but to the crowd, and says that any, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Following Jesus will cost you everything. It will hurt. It will bring you into tribulation. It will break relationships. It will have pain. And it is worth it. For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is a rhetorical question, right? You can't buy it. It's either in Satan's hands or it's been bought and paid for. You're either in Satan or you've been torn away from him through the redemption of Jesus' blood. Yet it still will cost you everything. If you are in Christ, your identity has to be in Christ. It can no longer be in this world. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In fact, I will say that if you have not seen significant changes in your life, if you have not had to release your hold and lost treasures of this world, schedules, habits, addictions even, you haven't seen a change of your focus from the things of man to the things of God, then you may not have true saving faith. James writes, someone will say, say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He continues later on, as the body uh, apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. These are tough words. And it does not say whether the crowd stayed with him or not. We know at other times that they leave him. This whole, I started by saying, this whole book is hard. It is. I mean, when, you, when someone asks you, do you believe the Bible is true? And you say yes, you are saying that you believe God created the heavens and the earth. You are saying that you believe that a serpent spoke and led people into sin. You are saying that you believe that God caused a donkey to speak, that he wiped out the whole world with a flood. You are saying some crazy, crazy things. He parted the sea. He parted the Jordan River. He brought down Jericho. Uh, And you're also saying that he thought that after all the things we did, that it would be worth sending his own son to die and to raise again, that we could be reconciled to him. These are hard things to say. 
do you really believe it? Do you really believe that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to save it? Do you believe that God so loved the world that he shows that love by while we were still sinners sending Christ to die for us? Do you believe that our righteous deeds are really like a polluted garment? We can do nothing but that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. If you do, that is crazy stuff. Those are hard teachings. And John tells us that in the midst of these hard teachings that, that many walked away. And Jesus turned around and said, do you want to leave also? You may be tempted to turn away. If you are, I'm going to plead with you right now. that Get into this, this book. Ask yourself, the same question Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say Jesus is? If you believe he was just a great teacher, that, that, that he was maybe even a deluded teacher, maybe he was even a, a, a little bit of a despicable, deceiving teacher, uh, then the rest of Mark doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. There's nothing in here that will give you any magical cure to your situation. But if you do believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, then everything changes. Because then you've got to ask, so what does that mean? And if you believe that what that means is that he came to live, to suffer, to die, and to rise again, to reconcile us to God, then you've got to ask the next one, how is this going to apply in my life? How is God calling me to deny myself, to pick up my cross, and follow him? After those, uh, we read in John, after those disciples, uh, many disciples in the crowd walked away from him because these teachings were so hard. Jesus did turn around. He said, what, aren't you guys going to leave too? And this is what uh, Peter again answered. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I don't know where else to turn. <laughs> so uh, when I ask this question, I hope you come to that same spot, that despite how difficult these teachings are, that you know no other way that you would turn. We're going to sing the doxology, which is a great way to end, and then head out to breakfast. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, help us not to be those who, who, who know or, or, or hear, but don't understand, who see and don't perceive. Open our eyes, of our, uh, open our, eyes our, our physical eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we, went, we might respond to you. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.